Thank you, Brittany. And thank you, Drew, for marrying Brittany. Appreciate that. Matthew chapter 4. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. When we look at Matthew chapter 4, we're very early in Jesus' ministry. We're going to be starting in verse 23. Jesus has just called his first disciples. He's got Peter and Andrew, James and John, who were following him. Verse 23 is where I want to begin today. It says in verse 23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is very early in Jesus' public ministry. Um, I can imagine uh, the buzz that was following Jesus at this time. I mean, it seemed like it came from nowhere. Suddenly, here is this man who is traveling around, and he is declaring the kingdom of God. And he's healing people. He's doing all these miracles. Uh, it says there, the, 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 the sick, the afflicted, uh, those who had, were possessed by demons, the, the epileptics, the paralytics, all these, these things that people were tormented with, they were bringing them to Jesus, and Jesus was healing. Jesus was doing all these things. And I'm sure that the buzz was beginning to get around the crowd of, is, is this him? Could this be the Messiah? He was beginning to gain a crowd, beginning to gain a following. Um, there were many who were beginning to become convinced in their minds already that, yes, Jesus is the Christ. And, and there were these other crowds who were just following because they wanted to see what was going to take place next. And it's in that setting, in that atmosphere, uh, that we come to Matthew chapter 5, which is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Most famous sermon ever in history. Uh, it's even a sermon that's respected outside of Christianity. Uh, there are those who are, who are not Christians who will see the Sermon on the Mount and recognize its wisdom and its greatness. Uh, but before, and I, I want us to work through, we're going to work through the Sermon on the Mount over the next several weeks, maybe even months. It's going to take us to get through all this thing. In Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. But before we do, before we really dive into what the Sermon on the Mount is, I, I want to stop for just a moment today, and I want us to first of all talk about what it is not, what the Sermon on the Mount is not. The first thing that the Sermon on the Mount is not is some form of legalism. And when I say that, well, this is what I mean. The Sermon on the Mount is not some attempt for Jesus to lay down a second law. Uh, this was not just some attempt for Jesus to take the Mosaic law and to expand it in order to create more burdens for God's people. That, that was not the intent, intent. Now, we know legalism is an idea that says that we must obey these particular commands, and by obeying those commands, and only by doing so, would we earn God's favor and would we earn God's love. But as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to figure out, what we're going to realize very clearly is that Christ was never interested in outward obedience alone. 
He never was interested in, in an outward show that lacked an inward heart of obedience. In, instead, he, he wanted obedience with a heart. He wanted obedience with a love. It's not just about putting on a performance. It's not just about doing the things without a heart in the right place. It's not just about faking it until you make it. But instead, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us, is going to teach us that it's as much about love, an obedience that comes out of a heart of love for Christ. Because obedience without heart is empty. Back when I was in college, uh, I was a music major. Um, I was in the band, and uh, I, I, got, I got paid to go to school. It was a great thing. If you ever want to get your kids a scholarship, teach them how to play an instrument and march in the band. And uh, they're more likely to get a scholarship that way than, than playing a sport, unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever you want to say. But, uh, but as I was going through school and, and majoring in music, and, and I had to do a lot of concerts, had to do a lot of recitals, all these types of things, had to do all these. I can't even begin to count the number of pieces of music uh, that I had to learn to play. But this, this is going to sound kind of strange. Um, but what I, what I learned during those years was that playing music is about more than just playing notes on a page. That, that to, I, could, I could learn the music and I could play every note on the page technically correct, but at the same time I could miss the music. But instead, music requires heart. You have to, you have to and this sounds really funny if you don't play an instrument, but you have to feel the music. You have to, to, to move with the music. You have to, to, to allow your soul to come forth in the music. And when someone, when you hear someone who does that, it's a completely different ballgame. It's a completely different world. And that's a little, I believe, connects a little bit to what, we're talking about, what I'm talking about here, what I'm trying to say here, is that Jesus isn't just interested in us performing the notes on the page. He wants our hearts to come through. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not in a form of legalism. Secondly, the Sermon on the Mount is not a pathway to salvation. It's not a pathway to salvation. In other words, we do not live by the Sermon on the Mount in order to earn our salvation. There are those that believe that. This is not a form of salvation by works. Jesus was not saying, if you want to get into heaven, you have to do these things perfectly. In fact, what we're going to see over the coming weeks is that it is absolutely impossible for a lost person to fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. Cannot be done. Apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you cannot live by what is taught in these three chapters. It is impossible. No believer can live by Matthew chapter 5 through 7 without being filled with the Spirit and daily walking with the Spirit. Many of you might have heard of the author by the name of Oswald Chambers. Wrote that little book, My Utmost for His Highest. This is what he had to say. He said, The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from identification with Jesus Christ. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. And so this sermon, I want to make sure we know from the get-go, is this sermon is not the path to salvation, but it is most definitely the path from salvation. It's most definitely the path that Christ has called us to live from the moment we come to Christ until the moment we step into glory. 
And so that brings me to my next question, the next issue that I feel like we need to address before we ever even get to chapter 5, and that's this. Is the Sermon on the Mount for today? Are we as believers even called to live by this? And I say that for a very particular reason. There are many who believe that what Jesus was doing here was giving a standard that was so ridiculously high that it would be impossible for anyone to live by it in order to remind us of our need for grace. He gave us here what might, some might see as an unreachable goal. They, they say that Jesus set this bar so high that we can't possibly fulfill this. And so really what Jesus was doing is he was trying to tell us how we're going to live when we get into heaven. How we're going to live when, when Jesus comes here to reign on earth in the new millennium. And so those people would look at this and say that, um, that these are standards that aren't really for us today, but they're for a future day. Kind of reminds me of a story I heard one time. I heard about a, a bicycle race that takes place um, in India every year. Um, now, most bicycle races, what is the objective? To ride as fast as you can, as far as you can, as quickly as you can, right? But this particular bicycle race was exactly the opposite. Your goal was to ride the shortest distance in a set amount of time. Sounds kind of strange, right? The goal was to go the absolute shortest distance you possibly could from the time the first gun goes off to the time the second gun goes off. And so what happens is these people line up their bikes on the starting line and, and they say, on your mark, get set, go, bang. They immediately put their feet on the pedals and they try to go nowhere. They do the best that they can to, to just rock back and forth and to wiggle their feet and to go as, as little distance as they possibly can until the bang goes off for the second gun. And the person who goes the farthest loses but the person who made it the shortest distance without falling over, without putting their feet on the ground, wins. Now that sounds like a ridiculous bicycle race, right? Because that's not what bicycles are intended to do, correct? They're intended to ride. I believe when we come to Matthew 5 through 7, I believe what we find is that Jesus wanted to give his new followers a grasp of what life ought to be like right here and right now of what we are called to be and how we are called to live today as kingdom people. He, he wanted his disciples to go beyond worldly living and to race right into a kingdom lifestyle. If you think about where he is in his ministry, this is very early. He's beginning to gather disciples. Um, they're seeing all these miracles. They're seeing all these healings. He steps back from that takes a break from that because he wants to establish for those disciples what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to live the way Christ has called us to live? He's trying to give them that standard. And so here what we're going to find in, in verse, let's just read real quick verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. These next two, three chapters are geared toward Jesus' disciples. Now, are you a disciple of Jesus? If you're a Christian, you are a disciple. Because what does disciple mean? It means a follower. It means one who follows Jesus Christ. To be a disciple is not some added step. It's not that we become a Christian and then we become a disciple. There's no such thing, I believe, as a Christian who is not a disciple... There are just faithful disciples and unfaithful disciples. But because Jesus was teaching his disciples here, 
and we are all disciples, guess what? These chapters are for us today. These are for us here and now. And here's how I know this. Um, I know this to be true because everything that is taught in these three chapters shows up either from the mouth of Jesus somewhere else in the Gospels or it shows up somewhere else in the New Testament. And so everything that is taught in the Sermon on the Mount is reiterated somewhere else. And think about this too. Um, I just want you to hear these topics. And you tell me if this is relevant for today. Do we need to hear lessons on character, influence, righteousness, and inner purity? Absolutely. Piety, ambition, relationships, commitment. Do you think the church needs to hear that today? Well, that's everything that's found in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is, is laying these things out because he wants to, us to see that our lives as believers have to be radically different than the world around us. That we are called to live as kingdom people, to live a kingdom life. That God's kingdom has come in Jesus and that we are his his, his citizens in his kingdom, that we might live in a lost world, but we are Christ's people and that we are called to live in such a different way that when people look at us, they see it. That there is nothing about us that resembles the world. You see, because the most dangerous thing we can do as a church is to look like the world. The most damage that we can do to the cause of Christ is to live our lives just like the world around us. Because when the world around us looks at the church and they see all the same problems that they see in the world, when they see all the same struggles and they see all the same lifestyle choices in the church that they see in the world, what happens? They immediately say, we don't need the church. Those people are just as messed up as we are. They have all the same problems we do. And so why do I need that? But no, Jesus called us to live differently. So that when the world sees us, they see salt and light. When the world sees us, they see lives that have been changed. Lives that are worth imitating as we imitate Jesus. And so let's get back to verse 1. And let's begin. Verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth. And he taught them. That's as far as we're going to get today. First thing I want us to see this morning as we begin the Sermon on the Mount is that, number one, we must recognize Jesus' authority. We must recognize Jesus' authority over our lives. Now, in Jewish culture, Jewish religious practice of that day, um, basically what would take place on an average day when a rabbi would teach was they would come to their group, they would come to the synagogue, they would stand to read the Word of God, and then they would sit to teach. And when they would sit, their disciples would gather around them and they would hear that rabbi's teaching. Jesus did this several times through the New Testament. He would come into the synagogue, he would stand, he would unroll a scroll, he would read it, and then he would sit down. He would roll the scroll back up, sit down. You, you remember those places? You, you remember those times when he did that? Jesus was following the, the, the rabbi tradition. But what he was doing was he was demonstrating his authority. It said there that when he sat down, his disciples came 
to him. He was taking that seated position, not because he needed to relax, but because it was the place, it was what the rabbi did as his disciples came close so they could hear what the rabbi had to say. Jesus is our master. Jesus is our teacher. But let me ask you this this morning. Do you recognize Jesus' authority over your life? Do you genuinely, truly recognize the authority that Jesus has over your life every single day? Now, I know that the easy answer is, well, of course I do, Jeff. I know that he's God. He's, he has authority over my life. I'm not asking for the easy answer. I'm asking for the serious answer. Are you joyful about God's authority over your life? Are you daily submitting yourself to the authority of his word? You see, there's a big difference between recognizing someone's authority and actually being thankful for it. There's a big difference between submitting to Christ's authority because you have to versus being joyful to come under the word of God and to follow the commands of God. I mean, just think about, think about it like this. Consider those who, who are criminals who sit in one of our jails or penitentiaries. They have no problem recognizing the authority that is over them right then, right? They can see it. They see the guards who walk around. They see the bars. They understand their lack of freedom. They understand the fact that they don't call the shots in their life in that moment. They are told what to do, and they are told where to go, and they are told when to come and eat, and they're told when to go back to their cell. They don't have authority. They can't help but recognize the authority that is over them. But are they happy about it? No. They're not happy about it. They're not joyful about it. They don't willfully submit to that authority. They do so because they don't have another choice. But, you know, had they willfully, joyfully submitted to the authority of the laws in their life, would they be there? No. Had they recognized the good of the law of the land and obeyed the laws of the land, they would not have found themselves in those places. Had they been joyful about the fact that there are laws and rules that are intended to protect they wouldn't have found themselves sitting in a jail. Instead, they fought against that authority. Well, Scripture makes it very clear that Jesus is the ultimate authority in our life. And that His rule, that His reign is for our good. It's for our benefit. It's, it's for our blessing, for our care. And as believers, we have to recognize that. But some, many who are unbelievers, don't. They refuse to recognize the authority of Jesus over them. Instead, they want to be their own boss. They want to call their own shots. They want to live their life however they want to live it. But it reminds me of a passage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, when Paul is talking about that, that day of judgment, that second coming, I believe, where he says this, he says, Therefore God has exalted Jesus, him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Paul's describing there the final judgment when Jesus' authority is going to be placed on full display. There will be no question whatsoever on that day who is the ultimate authority because Jesus will be sitting in that throne. And it says there that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, Master, Ruler to the glory of God the Father. But some on that day 
will not be bowing to Jesus as Lord as much as they'll be bowing to Jesus as judge. Why? Because they refused to joyfully submit to Christ's authority in their life. And they fought against it. We have to submit to Christ's authority. And as believers, every single day that we get up, we have to submit to the authority of Jesus joyfully in our lives. Every day that our feet hit the ground as we get out of the bed ought to be a day that we say, today belongs to Christ and my life belongs to Christ. And whatever He calls me to do, I will do. You know, imagine it like this. Imagine that uh, I left church today and let's say that I was headed out to Oakland. And let's say that I turned on Highway 64 and I started going about 72 miles an hour down Highway 64. What's going to happen to me? Right? Because it's Oakland, right? And you're going to get a ticket. You're not going to get out of that ticket, are you? Nope, ain't going to happen. Now let's imagine that as I pulled over in that, uh, that o- Oakland, uh, you know, what do they call them? Sheriffs or police? Officer. That Oakland officer walked up to my car and he said, Son, do you realize how fast you're driving? And I said, Yes, sir. But yesterday I obeyed the speed limit. What would he say to me? The day before I obeyed the speed limit, he would say, but were you doing it today? Well, no, but I did it yesterday. This is what I'm trying to say. That as believers, as Christians, we can't just assume that our lives are being submitted every single day. We have to actively submit ourselves to the rule of Christ every single day. Because every day our flesh is going to fight against it. Every day our flesh is going to want to do our own thing. We're going to want to try to take our life back over. That sinful temptation is going to come in and we want to do our own thing. We want to get the reins again. But every day we have to say no. Today is a day that I recognize Christ's authority. And because of that authority, we have to do exactly what the disciples did here. And that's to come to Jesus and listen. It said in the second half of verse 1, it says, And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught, taught them. You see, to recognize Christ's authority most importantly means to listen to the Word of God and to respond with obedience. I just want you to hear what Paul has to say in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. This is what he said Jesus' mission was. He said it was to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That was Christ's mission. To purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Jesus came to redeem us so that we might hear his way and follow it, and live. He's a zealous for good works. We can't get to those good works unless we hear the word of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it said we were created to do good works, right? That God ordained beforehand that we would walk in them. But to get there, we have to know what the good works are. We have to submit ourselves. We have to come to him and hear his word. I think it's a beautiful picture there that it says that his disciples came to him. They came to him. They wanted to draw near to their Savior. 
They were watching him do all these things. He sat down as their rabbi, and they drew near. Now, inevitably, there were others who were there that maybe weren't disciples yet. They were just part of that crowd. But his disciples wanted to be at the feet of the rabbi. They wanted to hear. They hung on his every word because they needed it. They understood that they were the words of life. You know, there's a danger in our churches today, among Christians today, um, that I think we could simply call by the name of superficiality. Superficial. And what I mean is that there are, those, there are many who, who claim the name of Jesus with their mouth, but their hearts aren't there. And how do we know that? We know that because they don't take his word seriously. They don't want to live by his word. They never, they never approach his word. And when they do, they never go deeper than just the, the surface. They never want to dig deep. Their approach to scripture, to worship, and to Bible study is more like a checklist. Okay, I went to church today, check that off my list, and let me get back to my regular life. Okay, I read my Bible, I read my proverb, my psalm today, let me check that off, and I'll go back to living my life however I want to live. But if Christ is our authority, if he is our king, then his words should rule over us. They should consume our thoughts. They should consume our minds. They should guide our actions. They should guide our ambitions. They should guide our desires. As we go throughout the day, his words should be on our mind. I think that was the point when, when, when Paul writes that we are to pray without ceasing. I think much of that praying without ceasing is to be thinking constantly on the Word of God and, and to be talking with our Savior on a regular basis and hearing and, and ruminating on His Word. I, I've been going through this in my own personal life as, as, as my wife and I have been you know, kind of thinking through and talking through and working through some different things in our family. Um, I find myself constantly just thinking through the Word. And as I, as I think about particular situations, um, the, the Lord brings his word to my mind. Now, that's not possible unless I'm in the word, unless I'm studying the word, unless I'm learning the word. You know, ultimately, this is a reminder of what it really means to be a disciple, one who is left behind his old life, her old life, to follow the ways of Jesus, to sit at the feet of Jesus, even when it's difficult, even when it seems impossible. You see, Jesus is our master, and his words are the word of life. And he has laid down the path in front of us of how we are to live. But to find that path, we must come to him here. We must come to him and listen, and then rise and obey. But sometimes, maybe, are, are we tempted just to write it off and say, this is just too hard? This is too difficult? I can't possibly do this? We, we're going to read through these next three chapters, and we're going to see there's going to be times that we read it and think, there's no way I can do that. There's no way I can forgive that person. There's no way I can, I can, I can give up that struggle. But that doesn't mean we throw in the towel. This past uh, baseball season, um, me and a couple other men in the church coached a little coach pitch team. 
And uh, before the start of the season, I could have told you how every single game was going to go. I could have predicted perfectly the outcome of every single game. I could have been the prophet of coach pitch. <laughs> and I could have told you that every single game we were going to lose. And there was a good reason for that. We were the youngest team in the league. It was a six- to eight-year-old league. And I think of the ten kids we had on our team, probably seven or eight of them were six. They were little bitty kids. Probably our best hitter on the team was this little bitty girl who may barely have come up to my hip. I mean, she was tiny. And there was no chance that we were going to catch any ground balls. There was really no chance that we were going to catch a ball at first base and get anybody out. I think in the whole season, we might have gotten three kids out. <laughs> it was a rough season. I could have sat back and told you, I could have looked at our team and said, can you imagine if I was doing this to six-year-olds? Kids, this is hopeless. <laughs> we ain't going to win anything this year, so let's just go ahead and throw in the towel. We'll give you some trophies and a Slurpee. And uh, let's just go on home. We'll save ourselves some time and energy and a whole lot of ulcers and headaches and a lot of tears. Let's just, let's just give it up, you know. No. I knew that we were going to have rough games. I knew that we were going to have bad innings and we were going to give up a lot of runs and we were going to have kids get out and cry and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but we didn't give up because that's all part of playing the game, right? It's part of learning how to play the game is going through the failures, getting up, wiping the dust off your knees and tears off your face and going through the failures, getting up. And I think whenever we come to the Word of God, sometimes we can look at things and we can say it's impossible for me to do this. And I think in those moments we have to be reminded of God's forgiveness and His grace. He didn't expect us to be perfect. He was perfect for us. He took our place. He paid the price. And he offers us forgiveness and grace. You know, even though I try to obey these things, undoubtedly I'm going to fail quite miserably many times. There are going to be days where my heart's going to wander. There are going to be days when my mind's going to wander. Um, where my, my perseverance is going to seem to fail. There's going to be days where I can't even manage to muster outward obedience. But God's grace is bigger than my mistakes. And those times, those moments don't make me want to give up and throw in the towel. But that reminder of God's grace wants me to pursue, makes me want to pursue the way of God even harder. Because as the Lord picks me up, I want to please him even more. I want to follow even closer to him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you here today as, as your disciples, your followers, imperfect as we are. And God, sometimes we come to the word and we think, this is just too much. I can't do this. I can't live this. Father, I pray we would be reminded of your grace, of your mercy. Just like as a dad, sometimes I have to pick my kids up, dust off their knees, and pat them on the back, 
tell them I love them. God, you do the same with us. That though we might fail, though we might wander, that you pick us up and you draw us close. So Father, today we come here once again submitting ourselves and saying that you are the Lord of our life, our master, our ruler, our everything. And Father, we come here as a church as Christians who are eager for the word of God, who are hungry for the word because yours is the word of life. And so Father, I pray for each and every person in this room as we, as we examine our own hearts and lives today. We would ask ourselves, are we people of the word? Not just people who hear the word, but people who want to give our lives to the word. Father, I pray that if there be life change that needs to take place in any one of us today, that today would be that day. We would lay our burdens down. We would lay the control of our own life down to you. And Father, I pray that if there be a soul here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day. That they would understand that they cannot earn their way into heaven that no amount of good works can undo the debt that they owe because of their sin. Father, I pray that they would submit, that they would understand their sinfulness, and they would receive the gift of Jesus Christ, the one who came to die on a cross and pay a price that he did not owe so that he could defeat death and the devil and could provide a way of forgiveness for us. And so I pray that if there be someone in this room today who needs to receive that gift, that they would, that they would feel you, hear you calling them today. And they would walk this aisle and give their life to Jesus. Father, have your way in us in this time of invitation. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?